0: Most people want some moderate sense of economic freedom.
1: Right, people want it, and the, the hybrid legislature is the best to deliver it, because they got the expertise to understand what the issues are, mm. and they also got the feedback from the people. And so they're less you know, likely to be, uh, you know, interest groups tend to be less dominant, maybe, in those legislatures, you know. Uh, so that's what, that's what we think is going on, and that's mm. what our results have found,
0: uh, so that, yeah. Mm. Economic freedom leads to prosperity, but what leads to economic freedom? Although the academic case for private property, reasonable regulation, and the rule of law is highly persuasive, that is often not enough to inspire political reform. So, so why do some polities embrace economic freedom while others actively undermine it? Feller Bose is an economics professor at Indiana University East, and his research focuses on the 50 states and why some are freer than others. During our conversation, he also tossed in some interesting analysis about the relationship between prioritizing economic freedom and supporting or opposing other types of freedom, namely sexual liberty. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Welcome to the AIER Standard. I'm Ethan Yang. Right now, we're on the road at, at the Public Choice Conference in Seattle. Um, as you can see, we're recording in a makeshift room, so we apologize for the um, for the setup. But we're, I'm really happy today to be joined by Feller Bose, who is a professor of economics at Indiana University East. Feller, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Ethan. And so we ran into each other at the cocktail reception at the conference. Uh, you're not necessarily affiliated with AIER, um, but uh, you did have a very interesting story. You told me that before you became an economics professor, you were actually an engineer. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So my background is pretty varied. Uh, in my undergrad, I got a degree in chemistry and physics, um, so more for pure science. Then I went into graduate school at Georgia Tech um, and got my master's in mechanical engineering. I worked a few years, but you know, it was a little uneasy about it. I wasn't sure I wanted to do this for the rest of my life, mm. um, and you know i took in my undergrad i took my undergrad at undergrad hope college which is a liberal arts college and there i took one economics class because they said you got to take you know you got to you got to get a broad mm-hmm. education right and that was i took one econ class i thought it was pretty easy and i thought you know who would want to study economics but a lot of the ideas you know that i learned in the class kind of stuck with me and made me think maybe there is a future in economics and i wanted to see if there was and so i you know, I attended some seminars at different places, trying to learn more about economics or read some books. Uh, and at some point, you know, I just, you know, I decided to see if I can get a graduate, graduate degree in education, which is when I went and studied my PhD at George Mason.
0: Hmm. And so, I mean, George Mason, you're joining us here at the Public Choice Conference. I'm assuming your approach to economics is more on the classical liberal side, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, it's more, yeah, kind of the George Mason tradition, you know, Austrian, public choice, you know, the classical liberal perspective, yes.
0: Mm. And were you always like that, or is this more of a learning experience?
1: I grew up in a socialist country, Mm. you know, so uh, you could say I didn't know any better, but Mm -hmm. I knew that my parents are well connected, so they did okay. (laughs) (laughs) But the rest of the Mm -hmm. people did not do well. Mm I mean, so I mean, I noticed that you know, my, you know, my, uh, you know, if you had a government job, you did okay, mm-hmm. you know, in in, in India under mm-hmm. socialism, but everybody else struggled. Um, so I think at some point I realized, when I came to the United States, I was like, well, it's, you don't need to be working in the government to mm-hmm. do well, you know. Um, so I think you know, those are things that kind of opened me up to alternative approaches to, uh, you know, how economic systems should
0: be run, mm-hmm. you know, and so yeah. Hmm. And I guess a little bit for the audience, uh, you mentioned, because I know India had, a, much like China, went through a series of economic reforms. Right. So India in the nineteen right the year I left to come to the United States,
1: they started major sh- changes in their economic policies, hmm. uh, major liberalizations that uh, opened up the market. Uh, I mean, they had some smaller changes beforehand, but they, in 91, they were kind of in a hard place. And so they opened, they did some dramatic change changes and the, that, yeah, that changed the country quite
0: a bit. Mm. So I guess they're just waiting for you to leave then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just needed me to leave mm-hmm. before they could implement yeah, but <laughs> things. <laughs> uh, but that, that does bring us uh, to the research you're presenting at this conference, which is um, essentially what leads to economic freedom. So I was wondering if you can give us first like a little bit of, uh, of a taste of what's in your paper. Right, so
1: I mean economic freedom you know, there are people that are measured economic freedom across the world. You know, different countries get a ranking and so on, uh, like based on you know how good are the property rights, how good are you know the legal system fair, uh, the monetary system stable and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of studies that have been done at the national, you know, international level, cross country. Uh, but there's also a bunch of studies that are being done at the US level, because we've got in the US have got fifty states and so you can each state is a little different when it comes to government policy on taxes on uh, labor markets you know what sort of regulations occur in labor markets taxation policy and spending policy and so they got you know there's a there's also a group that has measured economic freedom in the United States and so what I wanted to understand is you know what are the factors that might play a role in you know how much economic freedom there is in the United you know, in the US states hmm. uh, most of the work has uh, studied economic freedom as an independent variable. Uh, whereas I wanted to look at economic freedom as a dependent variable, mm. and there's only like a, maybe a dozen studies that do that.
0: Mm. And so you're trying, you're saying that the vast majority of studies just look at how economic freedom, you know, benefits states. But you're actually trying to look for, okay, fine, we can admit, we can all agree that you economic, economic freedom is good. So how do we even get there?
1: Right. More focused on what is driving economic freedom. Yeah. Mm. What are the factors that impact economic, you know, that cause. Where we might see more economic freedom, and where we might see less. Hmm.
0: Uh, yeah. And you said that the study focuses primarily on the fifty states, and or is it more international?
1: No, it, it is only the U.S. fifty states.
0: Hmm. So, I'm from the People's Republic of California. So, I'm. I was wondering if you can maybe, uh, yeah. What did you find out about the various states? So, why is California one way, Florida another way? Right. Right. So.
1: Uh, like I said, there's already there's about a dozen studies that have already tried to understand these things, and some of the the unique thing that I have we have brought my co-authors and I have brought to the study is whether the type of legislature that you have in the U.S. matters mm. in terms of you know economic freedom. Um, the United States is kind of unique. You got you got 50 states with all doing different things. Uh, some states meet, like California, for example, you mentioned, is a full-time legislature. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they meet all year round. You know, People mm. that are in the legislature are professionals. That's the only job. Mm. Uh, but there are some legislatures where they are meeting um, maybe every other year, mm. and they may only meet two months out of the year. Mm. Okay, And I'm saying so they're meeting one or two months in the year, or they may mm. meet every other year.
0: Part-time meet, legislatures. Yeah, yeah, part-time
1: legislatures. They are they all of them have other jobs because there's no way that income that they earn from being a part-time legislature is going to support them for one or two years you know mm. so they're really just there as like a, as a service so, and they may think of it as a service you know kind of the people's legislature you could say
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so you have this variety where you have full-time legislatures versus you know, just barely part-time, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But you also have this what's called a hybrid legislature, which is kind of in between. They may spend 50%, 60 70% of the time in in doing legislative work, but they may also have like a a side business Mm
0: -hmm. that they
1: do and they go back home and do that, you know, uh, where so they can get, they get more of their income. Maybe the majority of the income comes from legislative work, but they
0: also get a large chunk of income from other work. Mm -hmm. And so what you're going with that, the... I'm assuming if you have a full-time legislature like California, you have a lot of people who are essentially maybe putting a little bit more thought, more maybe more ambitious. The incentives are essentially that they need to be making laws to essentially, to be in business. Essentially,
1: right. So if you are a legislature, right, I mean, if you think about mm-hmm. it, legislatures want to, um, right, they want to get reelected, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the basic assumption. Uh, Legislators you know, tend to be, you know, they want to get reelected. And so, if you're a full-time—I mean, now one way to get reelected is if you had—if the way we modeled it, thought about it is if you—there's no information costs, right? You can get information for free, so to speak. Then uh, you know what all your voters want, mm-hmm. right? You know what the majority of the voters want in your district, mm-hmm. because right, you, you can—you know—the information, right? There's mm-hmm. no inf- cost to get that information, and you can always vote for policies that are majoritarian.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Once you—and if you always vote for policies that are majoritarian, then you always win re-election. Mm. Okay, now unfortunately, information is not free. All right, there is no there is a cost to getting information. Okay, and therefore, right. So how do you know what your voters want? Right. If you're a full-time legislature, you're sitting in in the capital city,
0: mm-hmm. right. You have a lot but of you, aides, people. You got aides,
1: everything. But you're sitting there, but you don't really know what people want, right? Mm. You kind of kind of isolated mm. in many ways. So how do you know what people want? Well, mm. interest groups play a role now, right? Mm. So interest groups you know, maybe uh, the NRA, right, mm-hmm. AARP, mm-hmm. right, they might come and lobby you and say, hey, look, the people in your constituency support, you know, people should be able to wear firearms, right, mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a defense or whatever, or hunting or whatever they choose. Is. Um, and then, you know, the AARP may come and say, hey, look, the people in your legislature want to make sure that, you know, they retire in your community, that they mm-hmm. don't want to get taxed in their retirement incomes and so on. So, but they're, Right, interest groups are focused on their right. They're trying to they're trying to suggest that if you do what they think is the right thing to do, you'll get reelected, mm. and and they'll you know help you get reelected because they'll give you donations and so on. Mm. But they're really focused on uh, interest groups, right? They're not. They're only focused on their minority consistencies, right? Not mm. the majority. But the idea is hopefully, right? And you can listen to them because that's you're getting information from them, but not from the general voter. That's mm. you know, kind of that you no. Know, was it ignorant, mm-hmm. rationally ignorant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they might, uh, yeah, so you end up, you know, doing things that the interest groups want, which are not necessarily the, in the best interest of the population,
2: mm.
1: okay? And so you might, and that might restrict economic freedom, right? Because they were doing, they're not necessarily doing for the common good, but for their own special interests,
2: mm.
1: okay? Um, and then you have the other extreme. We got part-time legislatures, right? They're in the community, they're meeting people at churches. They're meeting people at the grocery stores. You know what I'm saying? They're getting all, they're getting all the information about what people want. Mm. But the problem is they're only meeting you know, one month out of the year or two months out of every two years. You know what I'm saying? Something like that. And so they have a disadvantage because they got—they have they have all this information, but they don't have time. Mm. So they're kind of time-restricted, time-constrained. And so their goal is to pass the basic legislation as quickly as possible and get out, right? Mm. They've got one month or 60 days or whatever. they got to do all the work. And so they kind of in a rush to get things done and get home. And so they're, and they also need interest groups because they want to outsource some of the legislative stuff,
2: Mm.
1: okay? They don't have, they don't have specialization. They don't know anything about all these issues that are important. And so they might, so a lot of interest groups, for example, help write um, model legislation, Mm -hmm. okay? And they say, hey, this is a model legislation you should pass if you want to, for example, restrict abortion or something right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know what I'm saying, or you want to, you know, so here's a, so the legislature doesn't even have to do any research on the topic. He just says, oh, this is a great, I support, you know, pro-life causes, okay, I want to look at this model legislation that says, you know, this is what we need to do to, you know, restrict access, you know, and then, you know, say to abortion, for example, and then they will just pass that legislation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Does it make sense? So they're also dependent on interest groups, but for a different reason,
2: mm.
1: okay? That is, they don't have the expertise on legislation, they don't have time to do proper investigation into legislation, or you know what I'm saying so they kind of outsource that part. Mm. Okay which can also right we just focus on interest groups which again could restrict economic freedom.
0: Mm. So when you have a either full-time or a completely part-time legislature there's just too many incentives to I guess if you're full-time you know you've got a lot of lobbyists bothering you and they probably want regulations or they probably want some sort of special program that will benefit them at the expense of others. Um, and also, I guess, if you have full-time staff and you have, you're there full-time, you're constantly thinking of what's the next problem, right? I want to, you right. know, constantly just make more and more laws. It's essentially why you're paid. And, and assuming the, the other extreme would be the part-time legislature where you might just get these fully com- completed laws. You don't really read it and it's like, all right, well, yeah. that looks good. Looks good, and this is, I, I support you guys. I'm going to just pass this law. You know what mm. I'm saying? Um,
1: so, yeah, so you have this two. So this hybrid legislator is what we, we are theorizing. It's kind of this optimal Mm. legislature, right, because they are partly in the community, so they're hearing what people believe, Mm -hmm. and they also have the expertise to legislate, because they're somewhat in the legislature, at least 60, you know, maybe six, seven months out of the year, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So they have time to develop expertise and kind of follow, you know what I'm saying, study the issues by themselves or with Mm -hmm. the help of their staff and so on. And so they're more, you know, we think, you know, more in tune with what the vast, more the the majority prefers, and maybe not so much what the interest groups want,
2: mm.
1: and hence, so there be more, um, you know, more um, supportive of economic freedom issues. Because mm. I think, in the at least in the United States, people prefer being left alone, mm. right, mm-hmm. as opposed to wanting someone to raise their taxes, and you know what I'm saying, kind of mm. interfering in their businesses and so on. I think people don't like that. Mm. Uh, so, voter preferences in that way are geared towards economic freedom. And, mm. I think, and I think the hybrid legislature tends to be more in tune with that than the either
0: the part-time or the, the full-time. Mm. So I guess what you're saying is that oh, a huge causal variable of economic freedom <clears throat> not necessarily absolute economic freedom because I'm assuming you know we can some people may maybe don't want that, but generally speaking, you know most people want some level of economic freedom, and the better ability those people have to voice that concern to the legislature, the more chances that you can actually um, have policies that enact that sort of you know like moderate amounts of moderate economic freedom. Obviously we're not arguing that you know everyone wants anarchy tomorrow, but um, so this, but generally speaking you're saying that most people. Want some moderate sense of economic freedom,
1: right? People want it, and the, and the hybrid legislature is the best to deliver it because they got the expertise to understand what the issues are, mm. and they also got the feedback from the people, and so they're less, you know, likely to be, uh, you know, interest groups tend to be less dominant maybe in those legislatures, you know. Uh, so that's what we, that's what we think is going on,
0: and that's mm. what our results have found. Uh, so that, yeah. Mm. And I guess maybe this wasn't in your research, but perhaps an in international perspective. You talked about India. Um, I do a lot of research on China. Both these countries passed economic reforms. Uh, I, I would argue mo- mostly in, in response to, you know, the old system which is clearly not working. Right. And so perhaps you can argue that China and India, the legislatures were quite insulated as uh, China, especially is an authoritarian system. Um, and so I guess the causal factor was just the problems and the desire for economic freedom becoming so catastrophically Mm -hmm. like apparent. Um, And that's sort of just mirrored in a way at a more moderate sense in the legislature as in people can just voice that more easily. Right, right. right. Mm -hmm. I think in those
1: countries, you know, there's a abbreviation S-H-T-F. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard. Shit hit the fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I wasn't gonna say it, but but yeah, basically they're you're basically are back at the wall. And In a mm-hmm. sense, those legislatures, those governments or whatever, had to do those actions. Right? They were mm-hmm. really no choice. They may not have wanted to do it. I know in India there was a lot of resistance to it, but they really didn't have a choice. They're running out of gold to Mm -hmm. pay for things, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so they really had to open up. They were forced, in the you know, they're cornered, they had to make the decision. Mm. And so, but now the Indian government has slowed down all the reforms because they're not in that position anymore. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Mm -hmm. So we have a, we still need more, but it's not gonna happen, it's not happening because it's,
0: you know, there's too many things that are holding them back. Mm. Um, And similar story in China after Mao dies in 1978. um, One, the economy is in absolute shambles and then people are already just a lot of the Chinese people were already engaging in private enterprise on their own because the government was so weak because Mao just weakened it so much after the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the new government was just had to sat down and saw the, saw the writing on the wall and says, if we don't enact these reforms, the people are going to rise up and enact them on their own. Right, so, right. Um, But I guess the major theme is one way or another, the government just needs to hear it from, you know, moderate, normal people that they want. Not necessarily complete economic freedom, but a decent amount where we, they can make a living and live a nice life. Right, right. Hmm. So, on that note, and I guess on the you mentioned India, how they're slowing down because the desire isn't there anymore. I think similar thing going on in China, where um, you know Xi Jinping, see, like economic growth has has kind of has taken off, and that's not necessarily the main issue anymore. There's other issues, political considerations, and so the uh, economic reform has also taken a backseat. Correct. Um, so, a very interesting development. You mentioned another thing um, during this conference, which is okay, economic freedom, right? We we discussed the variables that lead to it. Um, you also talked about variables that are sort of interrelated um, mm. to it, more cultural preferences that either complement or uh, contradict uh, economic freedom. You mentioned specifically, um, in a very. You you actually posed a very interesting question, like you know, is. Uh, if I, want, I guess I'll give you the chance to pose it right now.
2: Yeah,
1: right. So, uh, another mm-hmm. aspect of my research, kind of, I, I didn't present it here, but I presented it before, uh, mm-hmm. is the idea of sexual freedom, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, what I mean by sexual freedom is, right? I, so, my research has looked at the laws at the 50 states again over a period of from 1960. I kind of tracked this. Is, you know, what is the score? How does a state score on um, sexual freedom? So, for example, What are the laws on the state, on adultery, Mm -hmm. homosexuality, bestiality, divorce, Mm -hmm. abortion, fornication, cohabitation, Mm -hmm. uh, prostitution, Mm -hmm. right? So I think about 15 different variables. I look at what does the law say about those things, Mm -hmm. right? And so the way I've defined it is minimum sexual freedom is sex sex is only legal between a man and a woman in a marriage setting. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Okay, that's minimum sexual freedom. Mm-hmm. And common law in the United States in the past, if you look at it, was the focus was on protecting that law. That definition mm-hmm. was protected, right? I mean, you had so everything else was criminalized, right? You had sex outside of marriage; it was a it was a wrong, right? You had homosexual sex; that was wrong. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So you divorced; it was very hard to get a divorce. You know what I'm saying? So all the law basically protected that arrangement, where you can only have sexual relationship in marriage, and and it's kind of you know keep that marriage. As whole, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to break it, so to speak. Um, so, so, since 1960, I mean, my research has since 1960 tracked how the how the U.S. states are kind of liberalized from there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And so, you know, a lot of economists believe that freedom is good, right? People mm-hmm. will say that economic freedom is good, like we just said. Uh, they'll say political freedom is good, right? Some people say you know, democracy and representative systems are good, and so on. And the question is, well. Many people also believe sexual freedom, right? It's a, kind of a personal thing, right, for many people. I mean, what's wrong with that being, you know, why should we only limit sex, sex, sexual relationships only to marriage, mm-hmm. right? Why not before marriage? Why not, you know, I'm saying outside of marriage or whatever. So um, so I was trying to think, you know, so is economic freedom and sexual freedom, are they complements?
2: Mm-hmm. they
1: go together? Is, is that freedom just go together or is it substitutes, right? That is, you gain one but you lose the other, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of what I was trying to, uh, that was another research project I'm working on. And trying to understand, of course, many people will say, well, there's no relationship between the two, right? It's just coincidental, mm-hmm.
2: uh, you
1: know, or, you know. So, yeah, so that's that's always, that's kind of the argument that people are trying you know, people are trying to, people have an intuition behind it. They have biases around it. Um, but, you know, nobody really has done that work. Uh, the last time,
0: I think the last major work that was done on this topic was in the 1930s.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. So when you say there's some sort of relationship, what is that relationship that you're observing? Right, so... Um, so uh, like,
1: here's the thing with economic freedom, right? Economic freedom, if you have a stable government a stable monetary system, for example, stable uh, legal system, like a fair system, mm. uh, secure property rights, right? What I'm saying is, all those things help you plan for the future,
2: mm.
1: OK? They make you future-oriented,
2: mm.
1: OK? You start a business, can you pass that business on to your Child or the grandchild, children, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's long. To, now you're thinking cross generations,
2: mm.
1: okay? Um, if, if inflation is low or you know declining, whatever, it's just very stable. You know what I'm saying? You can plan your business plans five years in the future, right? I mean, today we have banks that are suffering because all of a sudden inflation is much higher and they didn't plan for that, right? Mm-hmm. So you know what I'm saying? So those are things, uh, and so a lot of banks will fail, and so on. So I think low inflation allows you to plan for the future, uh, you know, so on, and so forth, so forth, right? So the idea of economic freedom. It allows for the planning for the future, as opposed to Im- immediate gratification.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, whereas sexual freedom—if I come at adultery, mm-hmm. right? What I'm, if I want adultery to be legal?
2: Mm-hmm. Right?
1: What am I doing? Right? Mm-hmm. I want immediate gratification,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not concerned about the future. Right? Mm-hmm. Because my wife will divorce me, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'll get sued, I'll, you know, half my income is gonna go now out split. Mm-hmm. My kids are gonna be messed up, you know, mm-hmm. they could, their dad messed, you know, adultery, and so they're gonna to wanna, to, and then their relationship, you know what I'm saying? So it kind of creates all sorts of you know, mm-hmm. effects, you know, beyond your happiness, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you know, even, you know, uh, like the controversial issues with, you know, uh, well, let me see, relationships that don't cause children.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, but
1: there's no children involved, right? So right, people, two men getting married, okay, you can say well, that's no big deal, but you can't have children, right? So children, in a sense, allows for, you know, thinking beyond your generation, right, beyond your, your lifetime, so to speak. My argument is sexual freedom is, if the society is giving more emphasis to sexual freedom, the median voter or the voters tend to be more focused, more in line with high time preferences. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. If if the society is more eager to do more economic freedom, they are more likely to have lower time preferences, which is they're more future-oriented voters. Mm. So in a state like, you know, like, we notice, like, if you look at all the states in the U.S., right, usually states, some states have more economic freedom, mm. and less, and they usually have less sexual freedom, mm-hmm. and some states have more sexual freedom, right, but less economic freedom, mm. right? And so we'll see that, and so I think the causal story is this time preference story, mm-hmm. okay? That if the voters tend to be more geared towards future orientation,
2: mm.
1: right? Then politicians still tend to—they want to get reelected again. Uh, they'll tend to focus more on economic freedom issues and sexual freedom issues, and then vice versa, right? If the voters are more geared towards sexual freedom. I mean, higher time preferences—that they're more, you know, gratification now right then they'll tend to be more sexual freedom than economic freedom now of course there are interest groups there also right if you Mm -hmm. have strong interest groups that believe strongly about we need to allow for you know the today the current trend in sexual revolution is transgender Mm -hmm. issues right i mean there are some people that strongly believe that issue
2: Mm -hmm.
1: i mean could they override the wishes of the median voter yes
2: Mm -hmm.
1: okay now of course, I think there's also a strong reaction again, so that there may be a you know a long time before this thing gets resolved mm-hmm. in favor of one or the other. But I think the meat and water, you know, the time preference argument, I think has some validity. It's kind of a very Austrian economic approach. Mm-hmm. Where the time preferences are important in
0: society, mm. and I'm assuming those time preferences are influenced a lot by political culture, since you oftentimes sexual freedom is associated with more of a left wing, left leaning cause, economic freedom that's more of a conservative cause. And you know, I'm sure conservatives are always thinking about how do we conserve, you know, what we have so we can pass it on to the future. And progressives are more about how do we empower the people that we have right now, right? And so this maybe sort of like a, also a political culture argument behind it. I mean, there's, I mean, there's certainly some institu- there's
1: probably some interactive effects here going on. You know, what I'm saying things are inter- you know interacting with each other, the institutions and so on. Um, yeah, I can see where that could be a possibility. Yeah.
2: Hmm. Um, yeah,
1: I'm, I've actually done some of this. I looked at, um, I looked at the OECD countries. I looked beyond the U.S. I actually looked at political parties mm. across twenty-two OECD countries to see what they believe on sexual freedom and economic freedom. And the trend lines always it's pretty straightforward. I said the left mm. parties tend to be more focused on economic, sorry, sexual freedom. The right parties tend to be focusing more on economic freedom. Mm. And that's what I find. You know, in nearly every country that I studied, you know, when I look at party platforms. The right tends to be driven by economic freedom, more economic freedom in their party platforms than the left, uh, which is more sexual freedom. Um, you know, but you know, and I say, and I think it's like I said, driven by time preferences. That's, that was my mm-hmm. hypothesis going into writing that paper, and so yeah, so so I think ultimately this research, since it's relatively new, at some point we have to think about it from an individual level, mm-hmm. right? How does an individual act? Right, how an individual acts and, you know, let's say they are living with someone before they get married, so to speak, right? So they have a higher time preference or they have many, they hook up culture or something like that. They are kind of involved in that. Mm -hmm. That's a high time preference, right? Immediate satisfaction, no long-term commitments. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of the life you're living. What's your perspective on long-term thinking then, right? Is it, how you know what I'm saying? So that's something I would like to study at some time in the future to see, you know, are they short-term thinkers or long-term thinkers and so on, right? I mean, I think that's kind of... And if you can can talk to millionaires, right? Mm -hmm. Are they long-term thinkers or are they short-term thinkers, right? Mm. So, you know, I'm saying those are the kind of things I think that will be interesting to kind of, you know, build off that project.
0: Mm. And I guess on the millionaire point, because I think if you mention millionaires, many people might... Uh, conjure up an image of sort of like a like a playboy kind of guy like he's got millions of dollars but he's also got multiple wives right so do you think that sort of complicates or perhaps maybe there's some sort of other consideration that's at play
1: right right so this is kind of this kind of ties in with right unwin even adam smith actually brought this up uh but unwin was a guy i said 1930s was the last time this was studied seriously uh he found he basically studied 80 different people groups and like a dozen civilizations around the world over thousands of years, mm-hmm. basically he said that societies that restrict sex to only monogamy, right, monogamous sex, so to speak, right, within marriage, they tended to be flourishing. They tend to expand. They tend to grow. They tend to uh, right, expand. You know what I'm saying? They tend to be explorers and, and expand their, their their boundaries. And you know what I'm saying? They used to they, get, they got prosperous and so on. But the problem is, once they got prosperous, they started saying, "Well, what's wrong with Let's have fun also sexually, right? Mm-hmm. Let's not worry about monogamy. Let's make it okay to do other things, right, sexually. So, and then that, he says, starts to decline, basically, mm-hmm. right? So, basically, so it seems like there's, you know, economic freedom from a societal perspective brings prosperity, but at some point when they get prosperous, people tend to be like, oh, what's wrong with, you know having fun on the personal level, right, in terms of why should we restrict sex to only marriage and monogamy and so on. Let's liberalize all these sexuality, sexual rules. And then they do that, then they start declining. And mm-hmm. he says basically it's like a two to three generations. This, this whole, they increase, then they kind of liberalize, and they start declining. Um, so there may be a temporary equilibrium where economic freedom and sexual freedom is high. Okay? But that really starts to decline is what he's, he's found. Mm. Um, and I think maybe this playboy thing, right? People get very wealthy. And it's kind of Adam Smith, he even says, right, yeah, at some point the rich can afford to, mm. you know i saying, mm. have multiple girlfriends or whatever, mm. get many women pregnant, right? And they can pay all sorts mm. of payments to everybody. And so I think, um, I forget, I think Adam Smith talks about the loose society and the kind of the strict society also, where he says, yeah, the rich can kind of afford to do that kind of stuff.
0: But if the society as a whole
1: does that, and it starts to declining as a society,
0: you know. So, mm. so getting richer doesn't necessarily. All it does is allows your time preferences to be more accommodative because you you have more money, you can afford to do more stuff. So, right.
1: But then at the same, yeah, at that point it starts to decline, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's what Unwin found, and
0: uh, yeah, I think that's what will happen,
1: you know. If yeah, society. I mean. I mean, things like fertility and so on has gone down. I mean, I don't want to. This is all comp, these a lot of complicating factors here, mm-hmm. so I don't want to make any generalizations. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. So I think people have less children. I mean, there's you know, people say there's also
0: reasons but I think there's also maybe a time preference thing. You know, people not having children, you know, things like that. Yeah. Hmm. So this has certainly been a fascinating conversation, and I don't only. I'd like to end by asking you, um, what's next? Right? You're definitely drawing all these fascinating conclusions. What's your next area of research? Uh,
1: yeah, that's so, I mean, my, like I said, my research has focused on two different areas. One is this legislature, right? Is there an optimal legislature that, mm. that you know, allows for better outcomes, so to speak? Here, economic freedom is, is what we see. But I've also done some work on uh, sunset legislation and um, some other work on uh, other restrictions on the. Ex- so, yeah, so I've done some other work trying to understand, is there an optimal legislature, uh, you know, looking at sunset legislation is legislation that expires over time. Right, you want to pass a highly like after 9/11, right? You pass legislation that restricts people's freedom, but then you sunset it, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're not sure what's going to happen, and you don't want pe- people may not people may support a temporary restriction on their rights, mm. but then you know at some point it's better to easy to pass a law that says you're going to expire than trying to pass a law that's permanently in place. Mm. Does that make sense? So we looked at something along sunset legislation. So basically, yeah. So we are focusing on you know whether this optimal legislature theory, you know what I'm saying? Is there some optimal legislature, Mm -hmm. okay, for things that are relevant and important to us? And then the other side is the sexual freedom kind of theory that I'm also working on. Uh, But that one is something I want to do at the individual level. Mm -hmm. So right now I've done it at the state level, but there are lots of complicating, confounding factors. So I want to actually, at some point,
0: hopefully look at it from an individual perspective. Well, definitely looking forward to see what you you find. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much for having me.